You're gonna have to take that towel off your head. If not, this isn't gonna work. Welcome to the Larparati podcast, broadcast to you from the other realm where the cyber fairies feast upon lost data packets that have strayed from the path. Voices today originate from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Oslo, Norway, and London, England. My co-host is Simon Brind. We are joined today by Janea Kemper, a writer, activist, academic, and game design lead at the Human Computer Interaction Institute of Carnegie Mellon University. But first... A quick word from our sponsors. You might think that sand is merely a granular material composed of finely divided rock and mineral particles, something defined by its size being finer than gravel and coarser than silt. But not all sands are the same. That's why I always go to Pembleton's House of Sand for all my aggregate needs. Each grain of delicious Welsh sand is collected by moonlight and hand-rolled by orphans. The sands of time are quicksands. So much can sink into them without a trace. Pembleton's House of Sand. The secret ingredient is love. So, Janaya, have you ever got stuck in quicksand? Uh, what? <laughs> Do you mean literal quicksand? You yeah. mean like your six-year-old fear? Because when you're six, you, you fear the Bermuda Triangle, uh, ancient curses, and quicksand? No, I've never been stuck in quicksand. <laughs> Martina, have you ever been stuck in... And actually, was quicksand a thing in Norway? Do you have quicksand in Norway? No, but I have a three-year-old daughter, uh, and she watches TV. So now every time there's a like, patch of mud anywhere, I get to pretend to be stuck in quicksand so that she can lift my legs out of it and save me. In the 1960s, 3% of all films showed characters sinking in, in mud or, or quicksand. But some academic research has proven that it's impossible for a human to completely submerge in quicksand because humans are less dense than quicksand, so they'd only uh, sink to chest height before they began to float. So isn't research brilliant? So, Janaya, for those listeners who don't know about your work, can you give them a quick summary of who you are and talk to us a bit about the research that you've done? I am primarily a game designer and academic. I like to focus on exactly what about embodied games can do for us. Um, I truly believe that games can help us to investigate ourselves, can help us investigate generational and personal trauma and help us to kind of build better worlds, better societies, and better ways of life. Um, it's a very simple concept, I think, because you've already done it. Everyone in the world has already done it. When you are a child, you play make-believe, you play pretend, and that is no different than when you're an adult and you're sitting around and you're playing a tabletop game. When you're out and you may be doing a LARP, when you're sitting in front of a video game, these are all types of play uh, that you are already kind of used to doing. It just depends on the degree of how you want to go. 
Yeah, but what do you do right now? Well, right now I am working on the P3G project uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I'm really, really lucky to work with both the Carnegie Mellon Robotics uh, Academy as well as the OLAB um, under Jessica Hammer, who is an amazing designer um, and super brilliant. And essentially we're looking into how we can create an interesting type of game that will help children in out of school spaces uh, understand with, see themselves working with, and see themselves being a part of co-robotics, which is incredibly interesting. Co-robotics are um, a wave of the future that has already been here. Um, they're a type of robot that you work with and alongside. Um, a cobot, uh, you can see them in General Motors plants in which you may be next to them while they're screwing screws onto an auto part and you have to kind of work around them. Um, there are a lot of different applications. That's super cool. <laughs> I was going to say right now that you said robotics narrative stories and and working around robots and I just gotta ask are you working inside the west world so I will tell you that I work uh one I have two offices one of them is on Carnegie Mellon proper the other is at the National Robotics and Engineering Center uh here in Pittsburgh which requires uh, special levels of access. So sometimes it does feel like I'm working at Westworld, uh, which having seen several different forms of Westworld and played in a LARP involving a Westworldy feel uh, can sometimes be concerning. <laughs> okay. but luckily I work at the, you know, I get to stay uh, with the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Academy. And that is a lot less Westworld. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? I think it's a great thing. Okay. <laughs> um, the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Academy does teacher trainings on all sorts of different engineering and robotics curriculums that they give to teachers and other folks who would like to integrate robotics into their classroom. So, so can we talk a little bit about the, the LARP intersection here? Right now, I am in my own work outside of Carnegie Mellon. One of the things I'm really interested in is reflective writing, and I always have been, and reflexive writing, which is Basically, almost everyone has done this. If you've ever written a diary uh, in which you've talked about how your day is and you've kind of thought about what happened during parts of the day and why did I feel this way, right? Uh, so, you know, your standard Facebook and or Twitter post, that is kind of reflexive writing, right? Where you're trying to kind of analyze yourself. Since I began my studies at NYU and then ended them because I'm all done now. 
I looked into how we can use that type of autobiographical reflexive writing as a way to think about yourself and some of the things that have been holding you back or to investigate systemic isms. So currently the work, I'm trying to expand my work um, because I have a lot of theories about how we should be writing after games, why we shouldn't be afraid to share our writing with each other. I feel as if we have held in a lot of uh, thoughts about who we play and how we play. And I don't actually think that's quite healthy. One of the biggest things you'll hear is like, oh my God, no one wants to hear about your character, right? No one wants to hear about it. I, I'd say that in a very ridiculous voice. Uh, because I think you should talk about your character. You should talk about your character often. With it. If someone wants to hear about your character, you should tell them. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. That's the key point. <laughs> if somebody wants to hear about it. Look, you don't have to talk about it over dinner for 18 hours. Um, that's a little different. But I find that doing a blanket statement of no one wants to hear about your character ever only leads to 4 a.m you desperately needing to tell someone and like and I get that and I believe you and oh god do I want to tell you about my character right I will listen all these stories about my characters my entire life at least my life possibly all my life because I've always been role-playing right but but I think the reason why people including me say nobody wants to hear about your character is because people are really bad at telling a good story. Well, that's <laughs> that's a lot different, right? Because um, if you could tell me, like, if you could tell me the story of one of your characters as if you were telling an actual good story, just like if you were really good at, at telling a story from your own life, it mm -hmm. would be interesting. The problem is it usually takes six hours and by the end of it, you don't really remember what the LARP was. Yes, I think we can also like zoom out a little further. How many times have you sat down with a co-player and just talked for hours about your character? Our interactions? Yeah, but what your happened? character, like in how it changed you or why it was important to you. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's where it is. We won't even talk to people who are at the same game as, as us, right? And it's the same thing with, and like this thing, this gets especially dodgy when you take it out of a LARP context and you put it into something like a tabletop complex uh, context. Then no one really wants to hear, even though you've been at the same table for eight hours, right? So there's a little bit of this um, fear of being mocked, fear of being seen, uh, as like less cool. Um, there is one, <sighs> I have lots of complicated feelings on College of Wizardry, uh, but one of the things, uh, lots, so many, uh, but one of the things I actually genuinely love is how fearless, like super dedicated College of Wiz Wizardry players are with sharing their characters and being very excited about them. And I think that's actually rather, I think that's more charming than people would like to admit to. 
Okay, next series of questions. I think we're going to segue neatly <laughs> into this one. Um, I, because, you know, I, I want this to look, or at least to sound like we know what we're doing in a professional podcast. And in order to, to make it appear plausible, we need our, our guests to have something to plug. Tell us about um, Feeding Lucy. <laughs> Oh, that's my actual laugh. Um, so uh, there is a really wonderful compilation of games um, that have been sponsored by the Effing Foundation uh, that is all about positive sexuality. Shirong um, Biswas and uh, Lucian Khan have edited it, and there are a lot of really great and fantastic designers inside. Um, I contributed a game that makes my heart sing. Uh, Feeding Lucy is a game for two or more if you use a hack um, that investigates the relationship between Lucy Westenra and Count Dracula. Um, it is a game in which you and your partner uh, kind of inhabit these roles, not from like a gender perspective, but more about a perspective um, of learning how your own body works and how your partner's body works. Um, it is an erotic LARP that actually uses uh, mutual masturbation in order to, yeah, that's right, uh-huh, uh, <laughs> that actually uses mutual masturbation to um, understand each other and provide clear guidelines uh, for your relationship. And it's really fun. Um, it has, it was vigorously play tested, uh, but yeah, it was, it was actually really cool to send that out to a group of people and get feedback on it. And it um, has two hacks included into the game. Uh, one is sharp white teeth, uh, which uses different principles of BDSM, um, as well as sensation play. And the second is uh, the brides, in which you can have multiple people uh, and one Jonathan Harker. I have questions. <laughs> Yes, okay. I. <laughs> you can ask me all the questions you want about feeding Lucy. It is one of my pride and joys. Okay, so you, you say it includes masturbation. Yes, um, yes, that is a mechanic. You, are you playing it in the same room as the other person? Oh, yes. So it's about, so, okay. So <laughs> I don't know if you've, if for anyone who hasn't read Dracula, um, one of the interesting things is that Lucy Westenra uh, is Mina Harker's best friend who is really wealthy and like kind of considered the perfect Victorian woman. Um, she sleepwalks, she sleepwalks, li she literally sleepwalks into Dracula uh, who eventually turns her into the absolute opposite of everything that's supposed to be with Victorian womanhood, quote unquote. So Lucy becomes sexy and she doesn't really, she thinks marriage is a little wonky and like she has all of this libido and no one knows it. And this is like an indication of how terrible she is. Um, 
And one of the things I wanted to think about with that game is there's um, the 90s version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was one of my favorite movies. And when Lucy Westerall gets bitten, she just throws everything out of the window. She's walking through the, she's walking through courtyards with fire orange silk and having like a grand time. And that Lucy Westenraw is so much more happy than Lucy Westenraw who has to sit in her parents' dining room and talk to all of these people. So I wanted that sense of freedom and that sense of emancipation, but between two people who are talking each other through uh, becoming, a lot of becoming. Mm -hmm. I'm such a prude, right? Like I'm gonna say it right now. I am such a prude. Uh, when it comes to to LARP, and and one of the things that I wanted to bring up today, which this this LARP really nicely segues into, um, is is it really okay to play on erotic themes? Why would you want to do that in LARP? Is it okay? <laughs> of course, it's okay. <laughs> A small part of me feels like playing a lot for the heavy erotic theme is, is kind of an excuse to explore sex. And that's bad? Yes, but I don't know why, right? But because ah, when yeah. I play other LARPs, right? Like, I think it's okay to explore what it's like to be a bully. I think it's okay to explore what it's like to be a victim. I think it's okay to explore um, prison oppression. Okay, um, so we can have things, right? prison but, oppression and we can have straight up genocide, racism, sexism, homophobia, but we can't have sex. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's what you're saying, no, but no. this is like, this is for, this is for lots of readers, I should say, or listeners, forgive me. Um, the idea that you can talk about every theme under the sun, but goodness forbid it's sexy. Like that's, I, I'm always laughing because uh, LARPs that have any sort of sexual theme or content uh, <laughs> are just really far below uh, the shock value for me than LARPs that are like, in this LARP, we are going to try and tackle genocide, racism, sexism, homophobia, and then like just like the rundown of things that are going to possibly kill me, and then they throw rape on top of it, so it's just like, and with a side, with a side order of sexual violence, so we can play on sexual violence and like all of this other things that people do play on, um, I think that you should be able to play LARPs that are erotic, and I think you should be able to play LARPs that are sexy, I think it, what it really depends on is who you're playing with, what you're playing, do those people have consent, and are you on the same page? I think those, that, it, for every theme, that's really what we're talking about. What, we have lots of games that can do lots of things. And I like, and I agree with all of that, and I think those are great questions to ask, especially if you want to tackle something like genocide or racism, mm -hmm. right? It's like, why are you doing it? Uh, how are you doing it? 
or everyone should be asking the same thing for a sexy game but why do you want to play a sexy game because it's fun i mean what there are many things there are many reasons because if you there's like the more flippant yes because it's fun but let's take feeding lucy for example that game is really useful for two people who may know each other, may have known each other for a long time, and you can pull it out and say, hey, would you like to read this game over with me? I'd like to play it with you. What do you think? And that's a very good way to start a conversation. You may never play the game, mm-hmm. but it'll start a conversation. And if if that conversation is started, as far as I'm concerned, then you've You've done a great job. Congratulations. You won the game. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, I find, I find that to be a really helpful and healthy way to explore parts of yourself you may not n- ordinarily get to explore. Audre Lorde wrote about, uh, about claiming the erotic as power, as a, as a transformative process. So, okay, so I, for the first time in my life, we'll put Audre Lorde aside. One of, I've had a lot of different jobs in my life, right? Um, One of the jobs I've had is as a sexual health and awareness counselor. And I held that for quite some time. Um, I really loved doing it. It was really special and important to me. There are many different types of people who are not considered sexy within overarching Western society. And this is actually quite false because all bodies uh, can be like all bodies have within its power to be wanted and desirable, right? Um, When we talk about adults and we talk about what they do and what they'd like to do and what they'd like to explore, one of the things we often don't talk about is how our perceptions of who we are and what we deserve as, as far as attraction, intimacy, desire, all of this, it's really heavily influenced by what we see, what we grow up being told we must be like, and what we understand as attractive. And so much of society scaffolds us in this way that we may not understand what we actually need to be well-rounded people who desire, okay? Um, There is a power in, especially those of us who are marginalized in many ways, right? Um, And looking at your body just for you and finding pleasure in it or desire in it or beauty in it, right? And these are kind of things we need as humans. It helps our mental health. Um, There are so many studies and like fun facts we can talk about when it comes to what happens to your body when you feel good or when you feel pleasure, right? And when you start denying, um, when you start denying yourself or you put yourself on a back burner and say, oh, I can't wear this. Oh, I, I really want to try this, but I can't, right? There's just a large gaping hole in what we think of uh, when it comes to desire, sex, wants, needs, and our own self. When you talk about decolonizing the body, is this the same 
This is a part of it. There are many things that go in with decolonizing a body. Uh, decolonization is um, actually a really great term that is used by many indigenous scholars. And like first and foremost, decolonization is about actual land and giving land back to uh, indigenous inhabitants, right? We always have to preface that. Um, and when you kind of uh, step back and you talk about like decolonization framework, you start, it comes with recognizing that everything we've been told really about society and what society is, has been placed in a very Western Christian capitalist setting that often devalues uh, whole swaths of people. Um, and not only does it devalue people, it teaches people to devalue things that are not that. Right, so um, a a body that does not serve those purposes is not considered a beautiful body, and beautiful bodies don't deserve pleasure. <laughs> so you will have you will be out here denying yourself beautiful things and pleasure and happiness and all of these other things simply because you've been taught you don't deserve it. And why don't you deserve it? Well, because you don't fit in the framework of that particular thing. So why would you guys use LARP to explore that? Or you can, but LARP is, I think LARP is really interesting in that if you let it, you can't just do that willy nilly, I will say like you can't, or rather you can't just uh, say, I've played a LARP, my body's decolonized. No, it doesn't, that's not how it works. Um, decolonization is really painful. It's not easy. It's really tough because you implicate yourself. You like there, there are times in which you are the person that's holding you back and you are the person that's holding other people back. And that's not an easy thing to recognize and realize. Um, a lot of the work I've done around LARP and decolonizing the body starts with Augusto Boal in Theater of the Oppressed and Brecht and the idea that people who take action um, and start playing roles, start to understand their own place in society and how they've upheld systemic oppression and how they may be victims of it. So that all kind of goes together. I just wanted to talk about House of Craving, which had mm -hmm. a, a profound effect, albeit temporarily, on uh, how I perceived myself, my own body and my level of comfort with it. So, uh, so House of Craving was a LARP played in Denmark, I think six times back to back mm -hmm. last year about a haunted house mm -hmm. that eats the people who enter it mm -hmm. pretty much, right? It devours the people that come in. So you play, mm -hmm. first you play a family and then you play the ghosts corrupting the next family coming in, mm -hmm. which was really interesting because you got that spillover effect from run to run of people reliving their own traumas and building it. And we found, I was in run five and I found an artifact from run two, which actually fit so much into my, my group of people that I thought it was one of my co-players who'd written a short story, which I then made her read out but it wasn't her, right? So she was sitting there off game thinking, why the fuck is Martina fucking with me, right? Making me read this story out loud because it's really embarrassing. And I thought I was making her read out her own words because 
the echoes from before and after just merged this LARP into like but how does this um how did this how did this change your body like how did this make you aware of yourself so Simon go for this tell well, me. I, no I just wanted to come in and say just to call back to your point about why would anybody play a LARP with erotic content yeah and, and House of Craving was an erotic ghost story and, and, and was billed as such and I'm not trying to stitch you up here but why did you sign up to play it I don't know. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> I don't have to be super self-aware. Right? Like, no, no. I was. I, I signed up to House of Craving. The safe reason is to say because I was really interested to see what it would be like to play first a family and then a ghost, like to become mm-hmm. a part of a house. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. And because I love the haunted house genre, but also I... of course because I'm interested in in exploring who I am right also in this realm but after playing it I still sit back thinking but is it really okay to play on sexual themes right so um so what I think is interesting is I really wanted to play House of Craving now and I am pretty much uh I feel like a target target audience for House of Craving because I really love uh, interesting house themes and like I I love a haunted house story like that is my jam but one of the interesting things is like if you if I don't know who my co-players are I live in a body that I can't trust people with so the light if I LARPs, uh, international LARPs of this type uh, can be quite expensive. And then um, sometimes they will involve a five or six or seven or eight hour plane trip. And then that will also involve a train and that will involve staying somewhere and eating and all of this other stuff. And like that starts to be quite expensive and most people can't afford it. So there is a limit. There is a limit of what I will do uh, without knowing who my co-players are, are signing up with a group of people because I refuse to spend lots of money and time just to be seen as not desirable, which is an accident, uh, not accident. It is a, uh, it is a legit, very true thing that happens. Yeah, and, and like as a as someone who is of a slightly larger than average BMI, that is my constant fear. Um, in life, at work, at yeah. parties, yeah, and at LARPs, of course, yeah, right. And and going to a LARP with an erotic team makes that about 10 times as bad right because oh yeah <laughs> if you go to a normal LARP you can just go like yeah but I'll I'll play the the villain so it's okay if nobody wants to hug me at the end because I was the villain right but at a LARP where it's like yeah this house eats people the fair is nobody will want 
Well, it's not even that. It's it's also the things of what they will do to your body because they feel that they have access access to it and ownership of it. Those are also things that we don't take into account. It's not just being ignored. It's being mistreated when a player doesn't even understand the reason why they're mistreating you. And so that's something that as we go forward with LARP as a medium, and to be honest, every immersive experience, because I had some really negative uh experiences at very popular immersive theater events, right? Um, And those have no safety rules. Those have no safety guidelines. Um, But if you do not understand what's, how to treat someone's body and how to give someone agency, then it, then it doesn't matter where you go or what you do, or even what the themes are, right? You can always be in danger of it. My favorite, um, my favorite example of this happened uh, at Fortune and Felicity, in which, uh, for some reason, a player just decided that they were going to talk about their slave plantation, um, which makes no sense at a Jane Austen romance LARP, right? Um, I was not necessarily uh, offended so much as I was like, wow, this person would not read the room. This person does not know why this is a problem. And that's the problem. (laughs) The problem is the person doesn't know it's a problem, right? Because they never had to think about that. (laughs) Yeah, but before we like move on to something else, I just, I I wanna say one thing, right? About House of Craving. And it's what you were, you were headed towards Simon before you backed out of it. And it's, it changed how I felt about my body and myself afterwards right and like a blessed four weeks maybe but what even but But how so something with that LARP made me feel like I wasn't unattractive as a person but what was it tell me yeah no because I took copious field notes because I'm a professional. Um, so I spent four weeks after that LARP when I was I was going into work in the morning mm-hmm. on the tube train. In London, you do not make eye contact with other people ever. And, and people were making eye contact with me and it was like the world was flirting with me. It was, it was <laughs> strange, transformative. How is it that this... A uh, bold, slightly overweight, middle-aged man is suddenly attractive. And, okay, but no, yeah. this this is the interesting thing to me because you know, the the fact that I noticed other people's reactions to me making eye contact with them, and I had this strange smile on my face because it was like, yeah, I got this. And it lasted a month. It was brilliant. And it, and it was beautiful and it was fucking heartbreaking when it went away and it did go away and then uh, being yourself again where it's like oh yeah but actually I don't like you like you said Janelle I don't deserve it right That's I am cool. gonna wring both of your necks ah, but I think this is everyone there right like it, it came why why do you think it went away, away? why do you think it went away Real life seeped back in. Yes, there you go. Because 
wow, that was the most lackluster description of you ever, Simon. I have never heard a more lackluster, untrue description of what you actually look like. Martina has the truth of it, right? It is reality seeps back in and it overwhelms the, what was it? There's the, the, the dichotomy between reality and truth. Is, is it was real, but it wasn't true. My point wasn't that Simon and I are terribly unattractive people. Clearly no, it, the, the point I is started... that when you look in a mirror, you don't, you can't connect the fact that when you were in House of Craving, you weren't, <laughs> it was, there was nothing physically different about you. The only difference was that you were wearing a completely different set of societal rules, right? And this is the issue. And like, this is something that made, like, this is why I've been pulling at my hair while listening to both of you talk is that when you listen to societal rules about who is beautiful how you're beautiful what you must be that is what gets in the way of you holding on to that perception of yourself I often look back at pictures of myself in my early 20s and say wow I was really pretty right? Because let me tell you, I really, really am and was. However, I didn't realize that because I spent so much time trying to be the thing I was told was beautiful that I didn't recognize the fact that I was already hot and I'm still hot and I'm hot right now. Let me tell you listeners, I am upsettingly attractive and this is what I have to understand and this is what I have to remember. It's not society's view that gets to tell me how I look, feel, am, or could be. When I think of being, when I think of you like being on that train, Simon, I'm amused. I am deeply amused. Because the idea, and it's the same thing with you, Martina, the idea, right, that all of a sudden the world seems to have noticed you. No, 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 no. The world looked at you like that last week. Here's the difference, my dears. You have now looked back at the world and go, oh, when I get on a train and someone is intently staring at me, and let me tell you, this happens often as a, as a woman of color who goes in different places around the world, I have come to terms with the violence that may be met upon me at any time. And so I have one of two options. I can have a sense of humor uh, or I can gear up to fight, which I do at the same time. So when someone looks at me, I wink. That's what happens, even in London. Because let me tell you, I have been on a very crowded train and I've had someone in a full three-piece, gorgeously tailored suit look at me and stare at me and I just wink back. And that amuses me. There's loads of stuff we haven't talked about in any day. We haven't talked about Three Rebels of Rowan yet, which is oh you know, no. But then you can only you can only plug one project. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, now I'm going to be painted as the person who writes sexy larps. We all know that's not that's not necessarily my shtick. But go ahead. I, I don't think that's what necessarily trying to do to you here. 
Um, <laughs> I'd like to say thank you to Janaya for coming onto the show and doing loads of emotional labour for making me feel better about myself. Uh, <laughs> Feeding Lucy is part of the Honey and Hot Wax compilation, which is coming out at the end of May, published by Pelgrane Press. So check that out. For the Laura Parati podcast, I've been Martina Swanwick. I've been Simon Brin. And I've been Jonea Kemper. I still am. Putting vodka in, more vodka in every time you dance. I should have pressed record, shouldn't I? Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs>